I want to invite you, as we get started into this text, um, just to put your stuff down for a moment. And um, let's take a deep breath and just be reminded that our Father, who loves us, is here, is present to us uh, by the Spirit, and uh, He longs to speak to us. And so let's just take a deep breath in, a deep breath out, and take a moment of silence as we prepare to hear from Him. Our Father who fills the heavens, who is present to us in this moment, we thank you that you are good, that you are true and real and beautiful. We invite you now just to speak to us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts and bodies and minds and souls that are open to what you want to say to us. We pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are uh, starting a new series today. And every fall, right after Labor Day, we take some time to do uh, what we call Vision Sunday, which is uh, a sermon or several sermons uh, that enable us to really kind of refocus as a church on our mission, our vision, what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus. And uh, every year we, uh, as an elder team, uh, uh, kind of it, through the process of prayer and listening to God and listening to what's happening in our community, uh, we establish what we just call an annual pastoral priority, which is just uh, an opportunity to maybe reinvigorate something or give some space to something that we sense that God's doing in our community. And so uh, this today is the beginning of this, uh, kind of focusing on this priority together. And, uh, and especially for those who are new, just kind of bring us in together to what God's been doing here in the past, what he continues to do in the present, and where he might be leading us to go in the future. And I want to do that uh, today. I want to start this series we're calling Seeking God um, by way of a story. And may, I don't know how many of you have spent a lot of time meditating on Chronicles. I suspect it's probably a pretty low percentage of you that have spent lots of time in Chronicles anytime recently. But it's, uh, this is a fascinating story, and many of us might be familiar with the verse that we read earlier, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth, uh, seeking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully devoted or wholeheartedly committed to him, but we don't know the backstory. And it's a really interesting backstory. So just some fun facts to kind of set up our context in uh, Chronicles. Uh, in the original Hebrew scriptures, Chronicles actually came last. It, it's one book that kind of got broken up into two, but it's the final book of the Hebrew Bible. And it was written by some, uh, an anonymous author called the Chronicler. That's just like a cool, that'd be like a cool band, the Chronicler. I, I don't know. Uh, but he, about 200 years after the exile, after uh, the Israelites had returned and they built the second temple, the Chronicler is looking back over the history of Israel and he's He's essentially retelling their story, but doing it with an eye towards the future. And there's a really cool literary pattern if you're into such things. That if you read the book of Chronicles, if you look at First Chronicles, it actually starts with the part that we usually skip over, which is a genealogy. Um, and, and actually that genealogy is kind of a tip of the hat back to the book of Genesis. Because Chronicles starts with the name of a man named Adam, right? The father of kind of humanity. And it starts with Adam and it ends... Really interestingly, Second Chronicles ends on an incomplete sentence, like an ellipsis, a dot, 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 an incomplete statement or thought. So if you're like a, you know, a neurotic or like a type A, you will, you will not like the way that Chronicles ends, because it doesn't give us the end of the story. Uh, but it ends with God's people returning from exile. And what the Chronicler is attempting to do is to, again, to retell the story of Israel's past, to kindle in them a hope for 
the future, while they were waiting for this messianic king who would be like David, but, but greater than David. Um, the one who would come to restore the temple, which is the key theme in the book of Chronicles, and who would restore God's kingdom. And so Chronicles is not just a boring history. It is actually a very prophetic work. It is, it's a prophetic work that is, that is intending to bring comfort to God's people and hope to a people that, like us, maybe in the midst of all that we're experiencing, all the disorientation, the disillusionment of our moment, uh, might be tempted towards despair. Might be tempted to ask questions like, is God real? Is he true? Is he beautiful? Is he still active and present in the world? Because it's been a long time and we haven't experienced his active presence in our lives. So that temptation towards despair or kind of withdrawal or passivity or indifference or apathy, the chronicler is trying to push back against that. And so he tells the stories. He gathers these stories about David and Solomon and essentially the great kings who lived in Jerusalem, um, starting with David and Solomon in First Chronicles uh, and then on to their descendants. And, and, and I say great kings a little bit tongue-in-cheek because they're, they're really a mixed bag, right? All of the kings have a mixed record when it comes to their goodness or their uprightness or their righteousness. So you read this, and it's interesting because you get a different slant on David and Solomon in Chronicles than if you read Kings, right? So in Kings, you get, you get like David uncut. You get all of the bad, all of the ugly, all of the, you know, the affairs, the adultery, the bad parenting, all of that kind of stuff with David and Solomon. But in Chronicles, you don't get that. And it's really interesting. In the book of Chronicles, these, these men... These kings are presented as a mixed bag, right? None are wholly evil and none are wholly righteous. But what, what he's trying to do is establish David and Solomon and these kings as a type of king of which the Messiah in the future will come and be the fulfillment of these longings that they have for a Messiah and for a kingdom. And so we, in the middle of this, then meet this character, this king named Asa, one of David's descendants. And if you read the story of Asa, which spans chapters 14 and 15 and then on into 16, um, if you read this, you see in uh, chapter 2, chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 2, the story, uh, verse 1 and 2, the story of Asa. He becomes the king as a child. And um, there's this generational cycle that's kind of, he kind of enters into with his fathers. It's a generational cycle of decline, Right? stretching backwards through his own dad all the way to Solomon, where these kings are increasingly moving further and further from God's vision for holiness and wholeness. And there's a civil war that actually breaks out between northern Israel and southern Israel or Judah. And so Asa's story and his reign essentially are organized around these, this, this civil war period and around two major military threats. And it's fascinating. Right? I mean, I encourage you to go this week, spend some time reading chapter 14, 15, and 16. It is a cautionary tale about a king who experiences in one half of his life the abs like a, a revival, right? Like a, an essentially just a revival and a renewal, something that we would all long to be a part of. And yet the back half of his life is marked by total failure and abandonment of the presence and the purposes and the power of God. And... Let me just throw the structure on the screen so you can see it. This is called a chiasm. This is the basic structure of the passage. So there's a, a building up to a central theme and then kind of on the other side of that, a decline. And so you see the story of Asa, which I want to tell just briefly. Um, it starts with the story of prosperity through seeking God. He experiences an unbelievable prosperity um, spiritually and materially. There's victory as he trusts in God. There's obedience to the prophetic word in a, in a long period, decades of peace uh, for the land and for Israel. And then it kind of culminates in chapter 15 with him making a covenant with God. And that's kind of the high point of his life. And then after a couple of decades of peace and rest and, and even reconciliation, the decline begins. And it's kind of a tragic tale of a man who was once wholehearted, whose heart becomes divided and he experiences decline. And so he makes a covenant with man, with human power structures, a military alliance. He rejects the prophetic word and he begins to oppress God's people 
And the story ends in chapter 16 with his decline. He gets gout or some kind of foot disease, um, and he essentially dies. And the story ends with him not seeking God any longer. And so it's a really interesting tale. And I want to tell it, but I want to tell it in reverse. I want to tell this story not by starting with Asa, but I actually want to start in verse uh, chapter 16, the verse that we read this morning. Um, chapter 16, verse 9, to go back to that. The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. What I want us to see, it's running through the book of Chronicles as a key theme. And I want, us, I want this to be the thread that also runs through all that we talk about this fall, right? Because the, the series is called Seeking God, right? So we're putting the emphasis on a certain syllable of the equation of what it means to experience a healthy spirituality, right? You, you, you get that? Give me a second to catch up. Okay. Um, we're putting the emphasis on our role in the process of seeking God and, and, and becoming wholehearted. But I, I don't want us to miss that really, if, if you were to read the book of Chronicles, the major theme in the book of Chronicles is not people seeking God. It is about the seeking God. It is about the God who seeks us as the foundation for a life of seeking God. God is a seeking God. And that's why I want to start in chapter 16. Because the central character in this story is not Asa. It's God. The central character and the, and the primary and first pursuer of wholeness and righteousness and holiness and revival in the book of Chronicles is God. God is, notice in this passage, this verse, God is seeking people who will surrender themselves to his furious longing for a beloved. He is like a lover who is seeking intentionally, actively, Perpetually, a beloved. And, and we are his beloved church. I, I love that phrase. It comes from kind of the civil rights era, um, where uh, because of people who had their identity stripped and their humanity taken from them in so many ways, the ways in which the black church is referred to is the beloved, we are the beloved community. I, I love that. That's exactly what we see in the book of Chronicles. God is the lover, we are the beloved seeking. And, and, and what Asa presses into here, what the people press into when they begin to seek God, was, was like this inheritance that had been passed down to them from generation to generation. They didn't just invent this out of nowhere, right? The, the, the foundational reality, if you go back to their fathers and, and the kind of the spiritual inheritance from Genesis chapter 3, from the moment they sin, what we see is a God who moves towards his people with redemptive purpose and presence. God goes after Adam and Eve when they sin, and he says, where are you? I'm coming for you. It's not like uh, God needs divine GPS to know where they're at geographically. It's not a geographic question. That's a spiritual question. We see that in Abraham. God comes to his great, 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 great grandfathers, and he's seeking a people. Exodus 3, God is seeking after Moses. He's seeking after a people that are in distress. He says, I've heard your cry and have come to rescue you. He comes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a beautiful passage if you want to read this Davidic covenant where he comes to David and he says, I, I've taken you from being a shepherd and I've made you the shepherd of my people and I've come to establish my presence with you. And your son Solomon is going to build a temple, a place for me, a home for me to dwell amongst my people. That's continued in the life of Jesus, right? Jesus picks up this theme. When he comes, one of the first things he says in his ministry is, I have come to seek and save the lost sheep of Israel. John chapter 4, Jesus to the Samaritan woman says, God is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth, who will be wholehearted in their pursuit of God. The book that we're reading this fall together, hopefully you'll join us in reading this. We're actually going to offer a class, a formation class, on this book here in just a few short weeks called The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer. I'm going to read this in college, and now reading it as, an, as a middle-aged adult, it just hits differently. And I'm sure it'll hit differently when I'm 60 or 70 as well. But he, here's what he says about this pursuit. 
of God towards us. Christian theology teaches the doctrine of prevenient grace, which briefly stated means that before a man can seek God, God must first have sought the man. And forgive the, the gendered language, right? He's writing decades ago, right? But here's, he says, we pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. Brennan Manning, who was uh, a Catholic priest um, who uh, was an alcoholic and lived a ton of trauma and came to know Jesus in the midst of that and for most of his life kind of struggled with doubt. He wrote this book um, a, a kind of about, he, he spent um, 30 days as a young adult uh, after he had converted to Jesus, meditating uh, under, the, under a spiritual director on this passage in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10, you can look it up. But it essentially says, uh, it's, it's one lover talking to another, but in the historic of the church, it's kind of interpreted as uh, God, God's pursuit of us. And it's essentially uh, talking about how I am the beloved and God's desire is for me. Spent 30 days meditating on this. And, and he's reflecting on that and writing in this book called The Furious Longing, taking a, a quote from G.K. Chesterton about the love of God towards us. He calls it the furious longing of God. And here's what Brennan Manning has to say about this desire of God for us. He says, the shattering truth of the transcendent God seeking intimacy with us is not well served by gauzy sentimentality, schmaltz, I don't even know what that means, uh, or a naked appeal to emotion, but rather in the boiling bouillabaisse, I'm going to mess this I'm not from Louisiana, the boiling stew of shock bordering on disbelief, wonder akin to incredulity. An affectionate awe tinged by doubt. The furious longing of God is beyond our wildest desires. Our hope or hopelessness, our rectitude or wickedness, neither cornered by sweet talk nor gentle persuasion. It cannot be tamed. It cannot be boxed, captivated, house broken, or temple broken. That is the love of God for his people. And, and that is a foundational truth that we want to kind of hang on to through the next couple of months together as we encourage ourselves to seek God. We only seek God because he first sought us out and revealed himself to us. He came to us. He pursued us with a reckless abandon. He reveals himself to us. And, and I say that because it is that pursuit, it is that revelation of his character to us that we see over and over and over again. We're going to see it in the stories. This fall, we're just going to spend time looking at stories from the Old Testament of different characters whom God revealed himself and his character to. And it's that pursuit and revelation that creates the soil of the safety where trust and faith and our seeking back of God can grow and flourish. We will not seek a God we don't trust. We will not seek a God who we can't be sure and confident that he's going to be there for us and always be seeking after us. And, and I think for many of us, that is the very challenge of seeking God, is we don't trust God. We need our image of God healed. Because the way we've experienced God in the past, maybe through earthly fathers, earthly parents, or other people, other lovers disappointing us, then kind of contingent and corrupt our view of God. And so this fall, we're going to be talking about these different aspects of God's character that he reveals. His presence, his goodness, his love, his beauty, his faithfulness, his holiness. Because we want to give a sense of what kind of God is coming after us. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where like that reality has just come crashing into your heart. I remember being in college and I became a Christian when I was a teenager. I didn't grow up in church, but I became a Christian as a teenager. But it was a very half-hearted kind of start to my relationship with God. I was in a Christian school, just wrestling with, was new to like the whole Christian thing, and just wrestling with being in an environment where there was so much half-heartedness and spiritual mediocrity. Um, and then there was a lot of mediocrity in my own heart. So I go to college and I go on a mission trip to the Philippines, spend three weeks with some of the most wholehearted disciples. I'd never met people with this intensity towards God who had such a vision for loving God and pursuing God and, and this understanding that God had pursued them 
and, and, and delivered them. And, and I remember we all, a bunch of us went to this conference uh, in 1998 uh, down in Memphis. It was called Passion One Day. And you guys probably not old enough to remember this, but it, it became like this movement, but essentially it was a gathering of like hungry college students who got together in a field. I mean, it was like Christian Woodstock, except everybody had their clothes on and they don't think anybody was smoking pot. Um, so we just gathered out in this field. And I remember this moment, like laying down with our faces in the dirt. Like that was the, just the invitation was just get down low before God. Prayer and scripture, uh, excuse me, worship and scripture, this word latrio, is literally just to bow your body down low before God and literally put your face on the ground. And I remember sitting with my face on the ground as we were worshiping and praying and crying out to God. And, and I was in the season of just kind of coming through some like rebellion, some doubt. And, and it just hit me in that moment, this awareness that God had been seeking me. He had been seeking me. He wanted me. I remember somebody preached a message at that conference on John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, talking about basically the people who didn't grow up as Jews, all of the Gentiles. I have other people that are not of this fold. I'm going to go seek them out. They will listen. They will hear my voice and they will come to me. And it, like for the first time, I begin to realize like, that's me. God has been seeking me. And as a kid who grew up feeling so lonely, so empty, who'd so long to be loved, to have that recognition all of a sudden that God loves me, God has been seeking me. I mean, it changed everything. And I don't know if you've had a moment like that where that awareness is dawned. If you're a follower of Jesus, I suspect that you have. But that's, that's foundational. That God seeks his eyes roam. He looks for intimacy with his people. He looks to strengthen, right? God is looking to strengthen you. He's longing to strengthen your failing heart. He's longing to bring you from a place of half-heartedness to wholeheartedness. That's not something that you manufacture on your own. That's not something that you can gin up, right? It's not something you create. It's more of a person that you are surrendering to. It's a reality you're submitting to. But there is an invitation in that for us to seek him back. And that's really the second part of our story here. God seeking Asa, he's seeking Judah, and he invites them to seek him in return. And so we see the story of Asa. We see his journey of wholehearted seeking. We learn some things about what it looks like to seek him. And I just want to point these out, not dive deeply into these. We'll come back to these throughout the fall. But I just want to give you some contours of what, what does it look like to seek God? What does it actually look like to have an active pursuit of God? Let's look just quickly at Asa's story. And let me just highlight some of these. We see that a wholehearted seeking of God for Asa and the people starts with reformation, a sort of renovation, a renewal of everything that really is birthed out of repentance. If you look at the next uh, this story, uh, chapter 14, go back to, to verse 2. Asa did what was good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. He removed the pagan altars, the high places. He shattered their sacred pillars, chopped down their Asherah poles. He told the people of Judah to seek the Lord God of their ancestors, to carry out the instruction and the commands. He also removed the high places and the shrines from all the cities of Judah. And the kingdom experienced peace under him. Because the land experienced peace, Asa built fortified cities in Judah. No one made war with him in those days because the Lord gave him rest. So he said to the people of Judah, let's build these cities, surround them with walls and towers, with doors and bars. The land is still ours because we sought the Lord our God. We sought him and he gave us rest on every side. So they built and succeeded. Wholehearted pursuit of God starts with reformation. It starts with repentance. Turning away from and tearing out the idols, renouncing the idols that dominate our hearts and create division within us. And turning to, you see that language in chapter 15, the Lord our God. 
We see all kinds of things here that we could note. There's the breaking of patterns of generational sin and idolatry. These high places were not high places that Asa constructed. He stepped into them, but they were his father's idols. And yet there's still a responsibility to do the work of tearing down those generational patterns of idolatry. He deposes in chapter uh, 16, uh, chapter 15, excuse me, he deposes his own grandmother who was, a, who was using these shrines. Can you imagine the kind of intensity in seeking God that you go to your own grandmother and you're like, get out of here. I mean, that's, that's some like chutzpah. I mean, that's, that's some like serious courage. Reformation starts by examining and rooting out sinful practices. While also reforming the broken institutions that transmit those patterns and practices. It's a private and a public work. Private repentance that goes public. It's a spiritual work, but it's also structural. Notice they had to build structures and institutions that were congruent with the spiritual renewal that was happening inside of them. I don't know if you've ever been through a season of reformation. Where God is just at work in your heart and life, tearing out idols. It's a very painful process, right? Like this is college for me. A very painful process of just beginning to notice all the ways that my life, my mentality, my attitudes, my practices were bent away from the reality of Jesus. And then beginning to root those things out, repent, and turn to the Lord Jesus and ask him to renew my mind, to renew my heart, to renew my practices, to help me live into the way of Jesus. It's a painful and yet a beautiful and necessary process. Clear the, essentially clearing the ground for the Spirit to begin to build new things into our lives. Second thing we see in the life of Asa is a reliance on God, a dependence on God. Chapter 14, verse 8, one of the big uh, issues that Asa had to deal with was these invading armies. And there's essentially a massive army that comes up against him. You can read it in this larger narrative. But you can imagine in the midst of this army, which was infinitely bigger than the resource. I mean, the point of this is Asa has no hope, right? Small army, big army, there's no hope. And you can imagine how tempting it would have been for him to rely on his own resources or to turn to a political ally to deliver him. And yet over and over and over again, five times in this passage, we hear this phrase repeated. This is one of the key words in chapters 14 through 16. Asa relied on the Lord as God. Asa relied on God. He refused to make a treaty and instead cried out to God in desperate prayer. Verse 11, Lord, there is no one beside you to help the mighty and those without strength. Help us, Lord our God, for we, here's the word, depend. We rely on you, and in your name we have come against this large army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let a mere mortal hinder you. This Hebrew word for rely just means an active trust in God that leads to then expressing that in action. And in reliance, what we rely on is always revealed and expressed in prayer or the lack of prayer. A lack of prayer can often tell us that we're not relying on God, right? We think we have the resources. Why do we need God when we've got money? Why do we need God when we have politics? Why do we need God when we've got social capital? Why do we need God when we've got fill in the blank? But notice he relies on God. He appeals for God's help. He appeals to God's concern for the powerless and the poor. He invokes his covenant name. And ultimately in this story, God is the one who delivers. Victory belongs to Yahweh. And no multitude, it says, can stand against him. And so this, there's this invitation in a wholehearted pursuit of God to just rely on him in very practical ways, to cry out to him. There's an increase in our prayerfulness in saying, I am overwhelmed. I cannot do this on my own. And so we all have that sense, I suspect, right now in our lives. Where it's like, I can't. There's just so much going on. There's all of these armies that are surrounding me, all of these enemies, all of this opposition and hostility. I feel powerless. I feel overwhelmed. And the question is like, where do we turn when we feel powerless? To whom do we turn when we feel powerless? The invitation for us is not power up. It's rely on God. Then there's thirdly a receptivity to the prophetic word. 
Notice uh, chapter 15, the Spirit of God comes on this prophet, on this man named Azariah, son of Oded. He goes out and he essentially speaks a prophetic word to Asa. 15 verses 1 through 4 and verse 8. Prophecy sometimes weirds this out, but it's just essentially the Spirit of God empowering his people to remind them about what they need from the past, remind them of things that are true from the past that they need to survive and thrive in the present moment. Prophecy is just a spirit-empowered word from God. All the content here of this prophecy, again, is not made up. It doesn't come randomly. This prophecy is essentially a retelling of Israel's history that comes straight from passages in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zephaniah. Right? All he's doing is saying, here's, here's your history. You are a people that forgets God. Right? It's just a retelling of like, you forget God. You have amnesia as a people. God disciplines you and then he seeks you out. And when you begin to seek God out, you are found by him. And he's just taking all of that history and saying, this is a similar moment. This is an invitation to seek God right now. Good prophecy invites us. A prophetic word invites us to imagine and inhabit the story and the images and the world of scripture and redemptive history and the new creation to come as if it were true and real right now. To not allow the horizons of our imagination to shrink and be diminished to the point that all we can see are the narratives that our cultural moment is telling us are true. Or the narratives that we inherited from our own family stories. It invites us to lift our eyes to creation and new creation, to the story of God's kingdom, and to begin to inhabit that reality right now. And notice the result of him being receptive to the prophetic word is confidence. Proverbs says a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. It gives them confidence. It gives them strength to remember past promises to apply them to the present moment. You see, spiritual decline happens, and we see this later in the story, when we forget. Spiritual decline happens in countries. It happens in nations. It happens in churches. It happens in communities when we forget. Renewal comes in the scriptures when we remember. Right? Remember how God has worked in the past. And so there's a call to remember their failures, but within the larger context of God's faithfulness, to stir up a fresh commitment to seek Him. I don't know if you've ever had a word like that, but it, it's amazing. And I could tell you stories about just words spoken at particular times, prophetic words spoken at particular times. Fourthly, then there's renewal of the covenant to seek God. Chapter 15, verses 10 through 15. This is really the heart of the passage. They were gathered in Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign. At that time, they sacrificed to the Lord 700 cattle and 7,000 sheep and goats from all the plunder they had bought, brought. Then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord their God of their ancestors with all their heart and all their soul. Whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel would be put to death young or old man or woman. They took an oath to the Lord in a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, and with ram's horns. All Judah rejoiced over the, oath, over the oath, for they had sworn it with all their mind. They had sought him with all their hearts, and he was found by them. The only time that phrase is ever used in the Old Testament. He was found by them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. The prophet invites them into a fresh encounter with God by establishing a covenant. A covenant that's marked by sacrificial worship. It's marked by a rededication of their material possessions, which they had given from the temple to idols. Now this money is brought back into the temple. Their wealth, their material possessions are rededicated to God. And then there's an intentional, the idea of a covenant is a, an intentional active pursuit of God. We're going to put some structure around our commitment to God. It's not just going to be a haphazard thing. It's not going to be an occasional thing. It's not going to be organic or just something we like kind of like, you know, like back into. We are setting aside and devoting ourselves and committing ourselves to seek in the Bible is a total commitment of life. It is a commitment of your mind, your heart, your body, your will, your imagination to God himself, 
to seeking his presence and his power in your life. This Hebrew word for seek is used nine times in this passage. It is the main idea that God wants to get across in the life of Asa. And then finally notice there is a reward. As they seek God, let's talk about here the wages. The wages of seeking God for the people, the reward of seeking God is reconciliation and rest. You see that in chapter 15, verse 9 and 15. There is a civil war happening. And notice as revival and renewal breaks out in the southern kingdom with Judah and Asa, people from the northern kingdom who had formerly had hostility, they begin to come home because they recognize God is with them. And there is this attractional nature to this kind of seeking of God that begins to reconcile. And that's a key theme in the book of Chronicles, the reconciliation, God's desire for unity and reconciliation between his people. And then there's rest. There's peace, there's shalom. This is all language and imagery being used of Sabbath here in these chapters. God gives them rest. He gives them peace. He gives them an opportunity to create and cultivate, to be fruitful and multiply, which is what they were commanded to do in Genesis. And here's the thing to note throughout this passage. The stability that resulted from Judah seeking God had an effect on their relationship with the larger community of faith, and it had an impact, even this passage says, on the nations themselves. Their instability and their failure to seek God later also has an impact on the larger community of faith. So what you do individually has it, if we are a body, if we are a soma, what you do and what we do has an impact outside these walls and with one another. That's a beautiful story, a beautiful picture of seeking God. And then we have the tragedy of the back half of his life, where all of these things are essentially reversed. Chapter 16 is essentially the reversal of all that happened in chapters 14 and 15. The, The Reformation and the repentance doesn't go deep enough. It's not complete. It's left open. They didn't finish the job of removing the high places. There's a reliance. Another military campaign happens where instead of relying on God, uh, Asa turns to a political ally and he seeks out human power structures instead of God. And in the process, he steals money from the temple. He steals from God and repurposes it. That's one of the ways we know that we've moved from seeking God to not seeking God is we take the things that are holy and belong to God in our lives and we begin to give them to other things and other causes and other people. There's a repurposing of our possessions, our feelings, our energy, our thoughts, our bodies toward things that are not God. There's a rejection of the prophetic word instead of a receptivity to it. To the point where he even begins oppressing the prophets, throwing them in jail, and oppressing people. Because when we feel insecure and we're not seeking God, we feel this sense of vulnerability. Now I have to lash out in violence to protect and defend it. And then it ends the story tragically with a failure to seek God. And eventually war, this promise of ongoing war, forfeited opportunity to experience ongoing peace and rest, decline, and eventually death. Now, this is again a very tragic cautionary tale. And as we reflect on the story, it'd be maybe easy for us to look at the story and say, man, I can't imagine how that would happen. And to kind of approach the story with a little bit of self-righteousness, like, Asa, you had it all. Like, what, what happened? And, and not to be able to see ourselves in the story, especially most of what's happening in chapters 14 and 15 in terms of renewal and seeking God happens when Asa is young. The back half of the book happens when Ace is a little bit older than me into the later stages of his life. And so I think there is an invitation for us here to not distance ourselves from the possibility, but to go, man, I could totally see how this could happen to me. I could totally see getting to my 40s, 50s, and 60s and this being my story. And if that doesn't feel resonant, it's just because you're young. (laughs) I feel like 29 is the new 60, though. And many of us hit these stages a lot faster. 
and how many conversations I have with people in our own church right now who are experiencing these same realities. I, I don't have the passion that I once had to see God. God. God feels distance. I feel empty. I feel lonely. I feel cut off. And so I just want to invite us into a couple things as we think about this year coming up. I, I want to invite us first into an active, wholehearted pursuit of God again. That's our pastoral priority for this year. It's to stir up amongst us a fresh intentionality to seek God wholeheartedly as a community. I don't know how you've experienced the last couple years, but I have come off the last few years. Last fall, I hit the wall of burnout. Exhausted, self-doubting, frustrated, feeling empty and pretty lonely. And I came to this place of just almost like passivity. Right? I just, I didn't want to seek really anything, but particularly not God. Just feeling the effects of a pandemic, of the trauma that we've lived, of all kinds of political polarization, all these things. And in the midst of that, I, I was reading the Psalms. I still, like getting up in the morning, creating space, reading, and I just kept hearing like this drumbeat over and over and over again, seek me, seek me. Seek me and you will find me. Seek me, you will find me. And I'm like, I want that to be true. It's just not connecting emotionally. And I'm hearing it over and over and over again in the book of Psalms. Seek me. And then I was in a leadership cohort with some leaders from our church. And one of the guys in this group said, hey, the rest of you guys feel like there's just this passivity that's kind of like almost jumped on us during COVID and during the last couple of years that's made us so passive. And I was like, that is a word for us. I instantly resonated. There was a lot of resonance in the group of like, yes, it has actually made me passive in a weird way. This spring, I was then reading The Pursuit of God with my son, talking to him about being a disciple. And we're reading Psalm 34. We're going through The Pursuit of God. I'm like, yes, this is what my heart longs for. I want this. And then on our elder retreat, so all this is building up. And then we go on our elder retreat in, in, in uh, April. I'm just like, what is the Lord doing? Tori, Adam and I are sitting in a, you know, a cabin or whatever. And we're just like, what is the Lord doing? And, and every one of us, as we go around, not having like cooperated beforehand, we get together and it's like, there is a longing for joy. There is a longing for beauty. There is a longing for peace. There is a longing for something that we can't seem to get into and all of us feel a little bit disconnected. And we also are hearing that in the larger church. And as we begin to pray and kind of God, the spirit begin to clarify, it's like, yes, there's an invitation here. The way that we find joy, the way that we find beauty is not to go after joy and beauty. It's to seek the giver of those things. And as we seek the giver of those things and we live in communion with him, the gift of that becomes joy and beauty and rest and reconciliation. And all the things we long for, they come vertically in our relationship with God, not horizontally in seeking them out in politics, in education, in whatever, in you know, human community even. And there's just this invitation for us from a passive stance to an active, intentional covenant to seek God. That's what we want to invite you into this year, right? An active pursuit. So many of us, we miss this invitation to an active pursuit of God. We think that transformation happens magically or passively. If we just believe the right doctrines, with, you know, if we just believe abstract truths, that we just sit in like a you know, prayer position and God's just going to strike us with this like divine lightning and all of a sudden we're going to become holy. That's not how it works. There are passive aspects of our faith, right? God's grace is something we receive. It's not something that we earn. But there are also active parts of our spirituality. And we often, again, put the emphasis on the wrong syllables. We miss this invitation. It is a biblical invitation to do something, to seek God, not just to sit there and wait for God to strike us. Just like anything that you love. I'm at the Penrod Art Fair yesterday. People love art and they're all in and they're doing it and they're going to classes and they're going to the fairs and they're doing active things to nurture and cultivate their love for art. Why do we not apply the same framework to God? And we wonder why we're deconstructing. We wonder why God feels distant, and yet we put zero efforts into actually doing the things that Jesus and God invite us into in terms of seeking him. And then we have this, like, you know, we're going around the cul-de-sac, 
right? And we're just going, I feel empty, I feel lonely. God's not near. What are you doing to cultivate? Well, nothing, I'm just waiting on God. No. That's the definition of insanity. Jeremiah 29, 13, unless you think I'm being unbiblical here. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your hearts. If you're not finding me, it might be because you're not seeking. I'm here, I'm present, I'm ready. And Tozer says, God waits to be wanted. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about all of these other things. You worry about this. There is a complexity that we feel to seeking God. And he says, it's actually very simple. Seek first God in his kingdom and all of these other things will take care of themselves. Dallas Willard, the abundance of God to our lives, our families, our ministries is not passively received or imposed, does not happen to us by chance. But it is claimed and put into action, get this, by our active, intelligent pursuit of it. We must seek out ways to live and act in union with the flow of God's kingdom life that should come through our relationship with Jesus. Now, there is, of course, no question of doing this purely on our own, but we must act. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. And it is well-directed, decisive, and sustained effort that is the key to the keys of the kingdom and to the life of restful power and ministry that those keys can open to us. One more time with Professor Tozer, the great mystic and spiritual master. The impulse to pursue God originates with God, but the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after him. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionists, but justified and happy experience. And I, I want to just put this phrase and like burn this into my memory and into my body this year. By children of the burning hearts. We want to be children of burning hearts. We want to be children who's, who stand before their Heavenly Father with our hands open. Aching and longing and seeking for that which is already available to us. It is the paradox of love. We've been found, and yet we still seek its presence. And so this question we want to put before us this year, over and over and over again, is just simply this. How has God been, it's a two-part question. How has God been seeking me? We want to build this into everything that we do this year. Missional communities, classes, serving opportunities, Sunday liturgy. We want this just to become like a form of examine for us as a community. We ask this question, how has God been seeking me? Am I, am I present to the ways that God has been showing up for me this week? Do I understand that he is furiously longing for me and he is coming after me? Do I see it? And then in response to that, how am I seeking him? How am I seeking him? What's it look like to build a life that seeks God? What's that look like in your life? This week, what are you doing to cultivate and nurture the love of God in your life? And this is less of like a prescriptive, here's how you do this. Because there's a million ways that you can do this, and it's more about like our instincts and our intentions. It's more about pathways. There's pathways towards this, and we want to explore those this fall. Pathways of prayer and worship and repentance and renunciation tearing down the idolatry and the sin patterns in our lives, replacing these faulty narratives about God with true narratives, right? Lifting our eyes to see horizons of possibilities not framed by our cultural moment, not allowing cynicism and despair to kind of cramp our inner world and, and really allowing generational forces and sins and all the things that are going to happen this fall with politics. Like, let's not let those things frame our horizon. Let's do what the psalmist says in Psalm 86. Teach us your way, O Lord, and we will live by your truth. Give us an undivided heart that we might fear. So we want to press into these pathways of wholeheartedness and teach and do this together. And then there's all kinds of other things that we don't have time for because it's time for communion. We have an annual plan that we're going to send you. Part of this also, as we see in the story, is building out some new structures, clarifying some structures, creating structures for how we do community together as we seek to rebuild in the season. 
I know that many of us are exhausted. A lot of our MCs have shut down. Many of us are new to the church and we're looking for community. And so we are also feeling this call to expand our vision of community to make what we're doing as a community more compatible with seeking God together in a way that's more sustainable, more accessible, uh, more diverse. And we're going to call that a community ecosystem. We'll talk more about that. And we're going to also be clarifying and talking about structures for reconciliation, which we see in this passage as a key fruit of seeking God is reconciliation. What is the actual structure and, and what are the systems that we're going to kind of lean into as a church to continue to push that work forward? Okay. Let's put our stuff down and let's just close our time here as we go to communion with this reminder that God is with us and God is for us. God is seeking us. And, and I just want to, us to see communion as an opportunity to experience the love of God again. To be reminded that the furious longing of God became a person. It's not just an idea. It became a person. He moved into the neighborhood. He lived on this earth. Jesus came to seek us and to show us what God was like and to bring us into the very presence of God. Gave his life to do what we could not do in our own strength, to enable us to then seek God and actually find him tangibly in the flesh. And now, you know, thousands of years later, by his spirit, to enter into that same communion with him. And I just want to read over us as a, just a kind of an ending prayer and meditation, this word from Song of Songs, chapter 7, that I think is a, is a, is a kind of like a, an archetype of what we were intended to experience in loving communion with Jesus. So hear these words as an invitation to you from God, by His Spirit. You need to close your eyes, you need to lift your hands, or whatever, however you can just get in a posture of your heart receiving this. Let's let this be our refrain for communion today. I am my loves, and His desire is for me. Come, my love, let's go to the field, Let's spend the night among the henna blossoms. Let's go early to the vineyards. Let's see if the vine has budded, if the blossom has opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my caresses. The mandrakes give off a fragrance and at our doors is every delicacy, both new and old. I have treasured them up for you, my love. If only I could treat you like my brother, one who nursed at my mother's breast, I would find you in public and kiss you, and no one would scorn me. I would lead you, I would take you to the house of my mother who taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranate. Run away with me, my love. God, may we see this morning ourselves as your beloved whom you long to bring into communion with yourself. May we receive this invitation to seek you, to seek hard after you and to find you as we seek you wholeheartedly. We pray this in Jesus' name.